unlike a lot of other areas of estate planning, there aren't a slew of reportable cases in the area of asset protection. And I think that just goes to all the more reason that Nevada has these statutes in place and they're very favorable. It makes it a really nice jurisdiction to have an asset protection trust. This is episode 27 of the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and I am joined, as usual, by Rachel Sass. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Brent. How's it going? Doing well. We're just clawing our way through 2020 here. Right. <laughs> We're halfway through September already. Yeah, it's it's almost Christmas at this point. Almost New Year's. We're, we're almost through this horrendous year. It's, yeah, I know that sounds really appealing, but there's a lot between now and the end of the year uh, that uh, I have to get done in my job. And so mm -hmm. I don't want it to be short. I want to have plenty of time to get all this stuff done that's piling up. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point, actually, that the last quarter of the year um, is typically the busiest of the entire year. Yeah. certainly can be. Yeah, it certainly can be. It always feels like the end of the year, well, years like this year are sort of exceptional, but then the end of the year and then the beginning of summer before everybody leaves on vacation because yeah. they're all convinced they're going to die on vacation. <laughs> and so, you know, they're like, we got to get this thing done before we go to Hawaii. Like, okay, well, I don't know that Hawaii is all that dangerous, but yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to dissuade you. Maybe, maybe they're swimming with sharks. You never know, right? You never, right? Know. You never know. You never know. <laughs> That's true. There's, yeah, there's extra variables there. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we'll get there, right? We'll get there. We'll get there. It's been uh, otherwise, other than all of the craziness and the wildness and the nastiness of COVID and everything else. Uh, otherwise, it's been a good year, actually, for us. We've been really lucky, I think. Good. Good. And I hear you're getting a puppy soon. Yes, but that's a state secret. Oh. So you can't tell any of my children. Okay. Yeah, it's not a state secret as between anybody but <laughs> me and my children. Okay. But yes, there there is a puppy in the future. I, I let my defenses down and now uh, this could happen. Well, that's just going to make 2020 much, much better right there. <laughs> yeah, yep. If nothing else, uh, it's going to add to 2020 tiny little bite marks on lots of things. Oh, yeah. Oh, for, for yeah. I still have our dog. Our youngest is going to be three this year. And there's still um, drywall, like kind of holes in the drywall in the house. Uh -huh. um, my ottoman definitely still is chewed up but at the bottom. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's character. <laughs> I also keep trying to convince everything, everybody that the puppies also like to chew you. So they have to prepare themselves for like puppies eating you. Should you have like dangling limbs somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the shoes, don't forget all the shoes that will be destroyed. Right. Gone. Right. Yeah, it happens. It's the joys <laughs> of a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, that exciting note, I thought today we would talk about Nevada trusts. And I didn't think that there was any more appropriate person to talk about Nevada trusts with than Victoria Khan. Victoria is an attorney. Uh, she has an LLM in tax. I know that for sure because she and I both went to the Georgetown LLM in tax program at the same exact time. So I know she attended class. 
uh, and graduated. Uh, Victoria is with Whittier Trust now, although she was a practicing attorney uh, at the beginning of her career, and she's in their Reno, Nevada office. And Victoria, we just could not thank you anymore for joining us. Thanks again. Well, thanks for having me, Rachel and Brent. And I can sympathize with uh, the the new puppy. Um, I we my husband and I actually got a new puppy last year, a month before I gave birth to my second child. Oh my um, gosh! Wow. It was a recipe for disaster. He's uh, adorable. He has become part of the family, but um, it's an adventure. It's certainly an adventure to have a puppy and a couple of kids all at once. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's another thing that needs your attention <laughs> and lots of it. Absolutely. So Howard, how long have you been in Reno? Because you didn't start your career there, did you? No, I didn't actually. Um, I've been in Reno for a little over three years. I'm originally from Lake Tahoe. That's where I was born and raised. I still mm -hmm. have my parents there. Um, but I actually started um, practicing right out of the Georgetown LM program um, outside of DC in the Bethesda area. And I worked for a small boutique um, estate planning and tax firm there. Um, and then I had taken the California bar, I was barred in the state and then returned to California in 2011 to practice actually in Santa Barbara. Uh -huh. um, and, and so that's really where I did kind of the bulk of my um, you know, legal work there. Again, focusing on estate planning, uh, nonprofits, some business transactions as well. And then was kind of lured into wealth management. It, it was kind of an interesting process. I loved practicing law. I love estate planning and tax. I'm certainly one of those tax geeks, but the wealth management field was just very interesting. The ability to kind of work on um, on the estate planning from from kind of a different perspective. So I was uh, joined a, a large private bank firm in Santa Barbara and then uh, came to Whittier, like I said, about about three years ago. Yeah, I imagine when you're on that side of it, having come from, say, the the private practice side of it, the differences now you see everybody's work, whereas when you're in private practice, you really kind of only see your work plus like the smattering of other lawyers work that comes to you because clients are changing lawyers. Right. It's really fascinating to see all the differences in drafting and um, the differences in how other attorneys approach working with their clients. Um, I think for me, it's really helped in what I do with clients now. You know, I was on the other side drafting and, and more of the theoretical. Now I really know kind of in the real world how how these trusts work, how they're administered, um, kind of the good and the bad to be able to kind of peek behind the curtain to see what that's you know really about. Yeah. All right, so tell us what what are the the few things that you learned after leaving private practice that you think private practitioners should never do. So we don't do those things. <laughs> never do. Well, I think, you know, what I've learned is clients, you know, they only look to a couple of people in their in their kind of lives for that to be that trusted advisor. I think that those are, you know, their wealth management team, their tax professionals and their and their attorneys. And I think some of the best attorneys that I have worked with really acknowledge that and they they kind of go not out of the bounds of being just the typical estate planning lawyer, but they serve in just kind of a broader capacity as that advisor to the family. And I think that sometimes attorneys limit themselves when they they feel like, you know, they're only providing legal work and it's 
kind of transactional nature because I think our clients particularly they are are looking to us and looking to their other professionals to really have that strong relationship that extends beyond just you know drafting the trust document or the the pour over will yeah interesting yeah we we try to do that and I I've always had the philosophy of especially for clients who are like in business uh, if there's anything I can do to make their business more successful, that is good for them and ultimately good for me. Because my goal is for all of my clients to become wildly wealthy. Absolutely, I think you know if you can, if you can be that that golden Rolodex, that connector, um, your clients will love you forever, and uh, you'll have you know a great group of clients you'll get to work with for many years. I love that. Well, on the topic of wealth, then, so wealth goes quite a bit to Nevada um, and for a few different reasons. So, Victoria, we're hoping we can chat with you about that. We're thinking, you know, Nevada's got some really friendly um, trust laws and they've got really favorable tax laws that I don't think a lot of people know about. So I'd love to hear your thoughts um, on a little bit of, you know, what, what all that entails. And then also looking at it in terms of just the asset protection that Nevada law can give to a lot of trusts, you know, protection from creditors, and then just how our clients today using Nevada trusts, you know, to their benefit. So how does that sound? For I think that's great. Idea? Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, so tell us a little bit about Nevada's trust laws. Like I said, they're, they're very friendly. Why, why is that? Well, I think it comes down to three things that Nevada really provides. So Nevada, as many of you know, you know, it's a very tax friendly state. So there's no income tax on individuals, no income tax on trusts. There's no state transfer tax in Nevada as well. So we're, we have, we don't have an estate tax. Uh, we don't have an inheritance tax. We don't have a gift tax. So that's obviously very favorable. The second is what you, you know, you highlighted the asset protection and the protection from creditors. Nevada has really made it a point to have really good asset protection statutes on the books for you know well over 15 years. Um, really, the best of of any state in the country. And then the third thing is the flexibility and control that you can have with the Nevada Trust. Nevada, you know, again, the statutes being drafted um, by a lot of practicing attorneys, you know, in the legislative body has really emphasized having flexibility within the trust document, having the flexibility to amend the trust if um, a need arises to do so, and also allowing you know, a lot of these families that are creating these types of trust to still maintain some level of control over certain things like distributions, like investments, while still having uh, you know, a, a professional or a corporate trustee. Yeah, and I think that the ability to be flexible and the ability to be creative in the way that you draft trusts is really attractive for me when I'm thinking about clients. We actually just did uh, a review for a client who is considering uh, setting up a trust either in Nevada or in Delaware. And so the client uh, obviously wanted to know, you know, what are the reasons why we would be in one state versus the other? And we we kind of gave them a, a big picture like, hey, here are the here's sort of the compare and contrast. And it was pretty clear to us that Nevada was just going to give them the most amount of flexibility. Although this is not to say that Delaware laws are bad, just that as between the two, Nevada was going to give them even more flexibility. And when you're thinking about 
putting property in a trust that's going to last a very, very, very long time, having flexibility becomes really important. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that's key, right? Because some of these trusts are being created and they're not going to last one or two or even three generations. They're meant to last hundreds of years. I mean, a Nevada trust can last up to 365 years. And if you think about that, it's really hard to anticipate you know, what's going to happen with these assets? What's going to happen with the beneficiaries? It's hard to draft for those types of situations that may come up over time. And so having that flexibility to go back at any given time and say, okay, well, we didn't foresee this this situation. How can we amend the trust to allow for a, for a better outcome for the beneficiaries? That's a really nice feature that Nevada trusts allow. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell my clients too, it's like, all right, we're going to plan for today, right? The assets that you own today, the the values of everything, your net worth today. But we're planning 10, 20, 30 years, like you said, for future generations. If next week you win the lottery, the plan that I am drafting for you today, I want that plan to work then. But then, like you said, if, if we need more flexibility, we it's it's so beneficial to be able to have that and to work with it in case some unanticipated circumstance comes up. Absolutely. Victoria, can you can you flesh out just a little bit to the the flexibility on the the management and kind of investment management side of things? Sure. So part of that is related to the fact that Nevada has directed trust statutes, which basically means that all of these different functions that a trustee would normally provide can be bifurcated between you know one or more other individuals. So that means that you can have a corporate trustee like you know, Whittier Trust, but then you can have a distribution advisor, which can be an individual. It can be a family member. It may be um, another trusted advisor of the families. And then an investment advisor, same thing. So what that allows for is, you know, we're seeing this in the context of, of clients that maybe have closely held family businesses that they want to put some of those, you know, those shares or interest into a trust. Or maybe a family has a very meaningful position in, um, a, you know, a publicly traded equity that they really want to maintain. That allows for that type of flexibility and control to be retained by the family while still having that corporate trustee, you know, perform all the administrative functions that a trustee generally performs. Right. And so just may, you know, maybe if it if it uh, helps anybody listening, the idea, I guess, being if you if you flip into the shoes of a prototypical high net worth family, they oftentimes, if not formally, at least informally, have a network of close advisors doing all sorts of different things. OK, so you you have financial advisors or investment advisors. uh uh, depending on the types of investments, you you have close family confidants and friends who help to make business decisions and who are consulted on with family dynamics and family decisions. And then you're going to bring in, a, say, a, a corporate trustee like a Whittier Trust to come and administer assets on behalf of the family. Well, first of all, the family might not want to give Whittier Trust, not that they're not trustworthy, but uh, might not want to give Whittier Trust uh, all of that authority over all of those roles that historically have been played by these different players. And frankly, Whittier Trust may not want to have an obligation to handle all of these different roles that have been handled by these different players. And so 
uh, Nevada allows you to split up those roles into buckets so that one piece is not necessarily liable for what the other piece does. And that, of course, insulates the trustee. So the trustee doesn't have to uh, double check the work of, say, the distribution person or distribution committee or the investment advisor necessarily, uh, absent probably fraud or uh, Ill illegal uh, activities. And then you can split those roles up and kind of maintain this informal, sometimes it's formal, but informal group of advisors that are sort of the, the family board of directors or the family executive committee. Right. It allows the family to kind of have the cake and eat it too, which is really nice. Well, can you can you then flesh out a little bit more on the asset protection side of things? We've, uh, we've kind of talked about some of this stuff on past podcasts, but I'd really like to get your, your thoughts on asset protection from two different perspectives, one from a, a quote unquote self-settled perspective and then from a third party trust perspective. Sure. I mean, we when we hear asset protection, I mean, a lot of us think of, you know, offshore trusts, right? You know, in um, the Cayman Islands or in Nevis or in some of these other, you know, very favorable, um, you know, exotic locations that we hear about. Uh, the nice thing is Nevada offers virtually those same types of asset protection, but a lot closer to home. It's it's an idea I think that clients can be a little bit more comfortable with knowing that their trust is a Nevada trust as opposed to being administered in a far off place where they don't get to know their trustee or really know kind of what's going on. Um, and so it's really for for our clients, it's provided a really nice alternative to the offshore trust. And in fact, we've had a lot of clients that in their kind of previous life have had these types of offshore trusts. And we're seeing more and more clients decant those trusts into Nevada trust because there's just, I think, a greater comfort level. Um, I think the, the other thing to note is you know, a lot of our clients are on the West Coast. Um, we have clients in over 35 states, but the majority of them are kind of Colorado and West. And so they like the idea of a trust that's administered in Nevada as opposed to maybe Delaware or South Dakota. Again, it's, it's I think, a comfort level that they have um, with the state being closer to their, you know, their home. You know, Nevada's had these laws in place for a really long time. We hear a lot about Delaware, but really Nevada is even better in terms of asset protection. There are no what we call exception creditors uh, in Nevada. So in other words, in Delaware, if you have an asset protection trust and you go through a very ugly, messy divorce, uh, you know, there there have been cases where those those asset protection trusts in Delaware have been pierced in Nevada that's virtually impossible. So I think it's really a nice, it's a nice feature that Nevada doesn't allow for exception creditors. Uh, the other nice thing about Nevada is that what we call seasoning period, and which is when a trust is created, there's a period of time, two years in Nevada, when a creditor can challenge the existence of that trust. Two years is a pretty short period of time, especially in comparison to some other states that have longer seasoning periods. Um, so again, it's a really, you know, attractive feature of, of Nevada trusts. And I think, you know, the, the third in the third party context, you know, we've seen this 
for many, many years. You know, clients, wealthy clients, maybe it's the patriarch, it's the matriarch creating these trusts for children, grandchildren. You know, they they are. There's concern over what is a future spouse going to do or what if a beneficiary gets in trouble with, you know, debt or gets into something really messy. The, the creditor protection feature gives clients, I think, great peace of mind knowing that those assets are going to be kept in trust and protected and and sometimes you know kind of making sure that the the beneficiary isn't their own worst enemy in a way yeah and maybe just to flush that out for anybody who's who's slightly confused by it as a as a background matter you have to understand that other than in i think 17 or 18 states right now i can't remember what the official count is right now if you create a trust for yourself, your creditors can access the assets in the trust. So they can get they can get at your beneficial interest in the trust. But in a state like Nevada, you're permitted to create a trust for yourself in which you are the beneficiary of the trust and there's protection from the claims of your creditors so long as you can kind of wait out this period of time that Victoria was describing uh, and not have any creditor claims pop up. Different jurisdictions that have these statutes, they they all do it slightly differently. Oftentimes, there's a, a class of creditors who are exempt from the rules. So those creditors can always come and they can always make a claim against the trust as if you were kind of playing by the old rules, being you're not allowed to set these trusts up for your own creditor protection. Uh, it's just that Nevada doesn't have that list. Uh, in fact, I think Nevada has a, a reported case. I think it's even a Nel- I think the name of the parties is Nelson. I'm not related to any of them, but um, there's a reported case in Nevada in the divorce context that that said, no, you can't touch uh, assets in the trust for support payments in a divorce. Uh, and I think it was a self-settled trust. So Nevada actually is somewhat unique in that way, as far as I can tell, and that it actually has a reported case on the books, not just a statute. Right, right. Um, I think, you know, and that is that is an interesting feature that, you know, there aren't uh, there. Unlike a lot of other areas of estate planning, there aren't a slew of reportable cases in the area of asset protection. And I think that just goes to all the more reason that Nevada has these statutes in place and they're very favorable. It makes it a really nice jurisdiction to have an asset protection trust. Um, and for a lot of our clients, you know, it's they, they become really concerned with asset protection in the context of, you know, maybe they have a business where it, that could easily give rise to, you know, significant liability. Maybe they're dealing in, you know, we've, we've seen it in uh, the chemical space or um, physicians that are performing, you know, really challenging types of procedures. Um, and so there is concern about um, potential liability, and that's where we've seen them consider, you know, as part of the estate plan, putting together a self-settled uh, spendthrift trust. Yeah, and then I guess there's there's a little bit of a corollary to that, which is the fact that Nevada does not have uh, state income tax, and it seems to be a very popular place for people to establish trusts. So that you don't have to pay at least state level income tax. It doesn't it doesn't get you out of paying federal level income taxes. But if you can shave off state level income taxes, sometimes that makes a lot of sense. You know, the California tax rate is 13.3% right now. Arizona's is 4.54%. When the dollars are big enough, even 4.54% extra is a lot of money. 
And so right. you, you can, it'll pay, you know, the trust can pay for itself if it's in Nevada and not subject to tax in other states. Right. It's huge. And I think, you know, we see it in the context of, you know, we're dealing with very, very high net worth individuals and families, and they're thinking long term, as you mentioned before, Rachel, you know, not just today, but 15, 20 years from now. And so a lot of these trusts are created for the next generation or two generations after that. And so if you think about the compounding effect of not having that state income tax, you know, maybe these trusts are created when the kids are really young, there's no anticipation of immediate distributions. Well, all of that growth over time, yes, it's going to be obviously subject to federal income tax, but no Nevada, no state income tax, that can be incredibly powerful. Absolutely. So then Victoria, so we're, you know, we're basically then talking about like dynasty trusts right now, you know, preparing um, a trust for future generations to come. So if a client comes to you and they're, you know, they really want to set up a trust. Uh, they they love hearing about all the the creditor protection that Nevada provides, just the flexibility. Kind of, what's the next step? So, like, what would you? Uh, you have a high net worth client coming to you. How would we just set up a a nice trust for them in, under Nevada law? Sure. So part of our process is really learning about the client, learning about their family, not just from um, a net worth perspective, but what we kind of call like the, the total life balance sheet. So we're learning about what's important to them. What is their value set? Um, how did they come by this money? Is it inherited? Did they create this money? Um, I think a lot of our clients have you know, they have a kind of family mission or a family value set around their wealth. So we learn a bit about that from them. And then, you know, given that we we start to talk about what does their estate plan look like? What have they done right now so far? You know, have they done any kind of advanced planning other than putting a revocable trust in place and their wills and the ancillary documents? And then we start to kind of shape out, you know, with that value set and the wealth, what makes sense in terms of planning with Nevada trust? Maybe it's um, you know a trust that's funded with shares of stock from the family company, and it's for the kids and the grandkids. Um, maybe they have um, you know equities that they want to put into a trust uh, for grandchildren for you know their college and postgraduate education. So it's a it's a process that we kind of work with the clients, work with their um, their tax advisors, the attorneys to kind of formulate how is this going to be a part of their overall estate plan. Yeah, and I really like that. That's that's similar to our process in in this. Obviously, we want to know a lot about the the client and the family. We want them to always, always, always have what I think of as basic documents, like you listed off the revocable trust, the wills, the ancillary documents. And then when they have all of those things in place, we can start building on top of it and throwing in pieces that amplify the outcomes that they're trying to reach, such as they describe them to us. So if it's you know preserving some piece of the estate so that uh, it's always going to be there for the family to fall back on, or if it's you know family business and there's some uh, credit protection concern that would be best served by by pushing those assets into a state like Nevada, you know, taking those concerns into account and doing planning that way. So we're always just trying to build pieces. And it sounds like Nevada and the at least the attorneys who are drafting the legislation uh, that was passed into law in Nevada were thinking about what are all these pieces that we can add 
to the puzzle that can amplify estate plans both in the state and then for people who are not even in the state or in the country in, in the instance of op existing offshore trusts. Right. I mean, and that's really the beauty of of these Nevada trusts, right? I mean, the, our clients that have Nevada trusts, they're all over the country. They're, they don't necessarily live in Nevada. In fact, most of our clients are in other states. Um, but by having a, a Nevada trustee like the Whittier Trust Company, they can accomplish those goals. So we always say it's nice, you know, it's a good idea to have your money in Nevada, even if you even if you don't live here. And and this allows you to to do just that. And are most of these benefits only allowed if you have a Nevada trustee administering the trust? Yes. So that's a critical component of all of this is that these trusts they can't just say they're Nevada trust. They really have to be Nevada trust in practice. And what that really means is that all of the administration related to the trust has to occur in Nevada. Um, the trust officer, or the trust administrator that's working on these trusts needs to you know, be here doing that work day in and day out. All the communication that goes out to the beneficiaries and interest, interested parties needs to come from Nevada. Uh, that's a really critical component that um, I think, you know, is, is sometimes not talked about. Otherwise, it can give rise to challenges from other jurisdictions. You know, a state can come in and say, well, you say you're, you know, administering a Nevada trust, but you're living in California and things are not happening as they should in, in Nevada. And so we're actually, you know, very tuned into that part of it. We have in at Whittier, we actually have two trust companies. We have a California trust company and a Nevada trust company. And so all administration of our Nevada trusts is done by Nevada trust company personnel. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I think there's a, there's a really beneficial component to also having as much of the work being done in Nevada if you're hoping to avail yourself of the rules and and tax laws in Nevada. Uh, Victoria, I'm sure you did uh, two or three page throughs of the Kastner case that came out of the Supreme Court not too long ago. But some of the the, the Kastner case essentially was a, a trust that was administered outside of North Carolina. All of its administration and its investment was done outside of North Carolina. It had one beneficiary in, in North Carolina who was a discretionary beneficiary, never received a distribution from the trust. And North Carolina had a law that said, well, we'll tax the trust because the beneficiary is here in the Supreme Court. Basically, although not in these exact words, said there aren't enough connections between this trust and the state of North Carolina to justify on a constitutional basis allowing the state of North Carolina to tax the income of that trust. It, now, if the trust had made a distribution to the beneficiary, I don't think anybody was arguing whether uh, the distribution would have been taxable in the state of North Carolina. The question was when the trust was not making distributions to the beneficiary, could North Carolina reach into the trust, so to speak, uh, and tax it for its state income tax purposes? And so when you're trying to set up a trust in a, in a jurisdiction like Nevada, the more you can push into Nevada, in fact, is better for you because it just protects you from those sorts of claims because you're cutting and you're severing ties with other jurisdictions, state or federal, that want to reach into the trust. Right. Well, and, and as you, I'm sure, are seeing, these states are becoming more and more aggressive when it comes to assets leaving those states. Um, California in particular, New York, 
Um, so it's really critical that if, if these trusts are being created in states like Nevada and other more favorable states, that things are done, you know, that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Yeah, so let me, so we're talking to a lot of clients right now about uh, making gifts before the end of the year in anticipation mm -hmm. of the potential outcome of the November election. And also just because that's good gift tax and estate tax planning anyways to do the gifting now rather than waiting. So if they wanted to set up a Nevada trust, I am guessing the types of assets that would be really conducive to doing that are assets that can be easily moved to Nevada. So we're not really talking about real estate here. Right. I mean, as you know, if there if you know you put a piece of real estate that's in California into a Nevada trust, you're you're still going to be subject to California income tax. Um, so this is really more we're seeing a lot more of these types of trusts in the context of, you know, as I stated before, families setting these up to be long term. Maybe there are not distributions that are anticipated or maybe they're funded with, um, you know, just equities and it's it's that's a pretty easy way to create these trusts you know dumping you know a, a portion of of the of the family's equity portfolio into into these trusts um that's that's probably the easiest solution yeah so intangible assets and not not necessarily intangible assets that have real estate underneath them right and sorry, I, I tee that up because occasionally I hear somebody say something on the, along the lines of, well, what you could do is you could put, say, the Arizona real estate into a limited liability company and then transfer the limited liability company, which is the interest in that is intangible. You can transfer that to the state of Nevada. I'm always very leery of that kind of planning. I have a hard time believing that you're going to convince a state court judge in Arizona that they don't have jurisdiction over Arizona real estate regardless. So I don't think that kind of planning is as good as it is advertised. I would agree. I think, you know, like I said, we really see it in a context of of maybe closely held business interests and equities and that sort of thing, where I think it makes a lot more sense from a planning perspective. And correct me if I'm wrong, Victoria, but so if someone, if um, a client is really hoping to take advantage of Nevada's income tax laws and having no state income tax. Um, a, one asset that would be really uh, beneficial to put into a Nevada trust would be a highly uh, or a high income producing asset that you can, you know, anticipate in the future. Okay, let's try and get rid of any of this income. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, it's great in the in the context of of some of these freezing techniques, right? Where mm -hmm. we're the goal is really to get assets out of maybe the patriarch or the matriarch's estate. Um, and as as we all know, we're doing a lot of that right now. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty as to where uh, the lifetime exemption is going to go. Um, and I think sooner rather than later, we're seeing clients in that context think about using their exemption to create some of these Nevada trusts. So can I, can I jump back topics just a little bit? You mentioned this. Uh, a while ago, uh, but I'm I'm curious to see what what you're seeing, and that is money being onshored or domesticated into the U.S. from outside jurisdictions. Be that Americans who have set up offshore trusts uh, in the past, and they got sick and tired of filing all the many, many, many duplicitous federal filings. They have to file for those things every year. 
Mm -hmm. um, and the fees are very high and they're not getting the investment returns that they were hoping for. And so they decide to bring that money on shore or foreigners who want to invest in the U.S. They want to put their money in the U.S. because it's a very stable economy and a stable investment environment. And so they're looking for a jurisdiction where they can do that. Is that the kind of thing that you're seeing on the foreign side? We are. And I think a, a lot of it is is the uh, the former. I mean, I've had two clients just in the last maybe six months where they had, like you stated, you know, previous offshore trusts and it was quite expensive to administer. It was very difficult for them to get to the right person that was actually doing the administration of the trust. Um, it was kind of the circuitous, you know, um, pathway for them to actually even find out what was going on with the investments and what was going on with the trust itself. And so the concept of having it, you know, they, they can understand it more. And, and I think when it's, it's a domestic trust. Um, I, I also think that, you know, there are less attorneys in the U.S. that are really well versed in offshore planning. And so that that can be a challenge for the client where they have to go out and find the right professional that really understands the planning that they may have previously done or that they want to do. Um, whereas, you know, we work with a variety of really excellent attorneys and, and a bunch of states and particularly in Nevada that understand Nevada law and understand how these trusts work, um, you know, in practice. And I think that that's a huge differentiator as well. Yeah, no, no question about the, the lack of expertise in the U.S. on the international tax rules. We see that a lot. We do a fair amount of, of cross-border work and the dearth of understanding of those rules is pretty jarring sometimes. And it's just burdensome. If you're, a, if you're a U.S. citizen and you have assets overseas and you have elected to have assets overseas, we're not talking about um, things that are forced upon you by business necessity or family necessity. No, you've, you've elected to push assets overseas for various reasons, and now you're caught up in the U.S. international tax system, and you, you learn pretty quickly under those circumstances that the U.S. wants to discourage you from doing that, and they will make it miserable to push investments outside of our our uh, fifty our fifty state uh, configuration here. Uh, they'll make the tax treatment of the investments that are offshore disadvantageous. They'll make the trust rules disadvantageous. They make the reporting requirements disadvantageous. Uh, so I yeah I could easily see people, uh, Americans with offshore trusts that they set up by election, say a couple decades ago, thinking, I'm sick of this. Uh, I'm getting out of this. Well, and one missed reporting, you know, gives rise to potential audit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, high net worth families and individuals don't want to be audited. Um, they don't want to go through that hassle. Uh, I think it's a, it's always a concern anyway. So why, why raise the likelihood of an audit when you don't have to. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Well, this has been really interesting. Uh, I was very interested in chatting with you about this, aside from because of the fact that you know a lot about it, and I knew I was gonna learn a lot, which I did. Uh, I've, I've learned somewhat recently that we have the ability in-house to do Nevada work, so that was exciting for me too. So uh, I very much appreciate the time you've spent and the time you let us take and, and all of the pearls of wisdom you've given us, Victoria. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Brian. It was really a, a fun experience to be on the podcast with you today.
Good. Where can people find you should they want to reach out? Sure. Well, we have a great website, whittiertrust.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Victoria Khan. You can reach out to me there. And my email is pretty easy. It's vcon, K-A-H-N, at whittiertrust.com. Excellent. All right. Well, if anybody has questions about uh, Nevada Trusts, obviously Victoria knows a lot about it and would be an excellent resource. And obviously, if you have need for uh, Nevada trustee services in Nevada, Whittier is well set up and has a really great team to do all those things for you. So thanks again, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you both. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.